This evening's reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, um, and that can be found on page 1186, um, 1186 in the Church Bibles. 1 Thessalonians 2, starting at verse 1. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, But with the help of God, we dared to tell you his gospel, in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, but from you, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you have become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order to not be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dwelt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Good. Well, well, everyone has um, whatever their particular... I suppose occupation is, has the tools of their trade. So if, even if it's not their job, you know, the musicians have their musical instruments, carpenters have their tools, don't they? They have saws and chisels and rulers and set squares, and I turn my microphone on, and then I can use one of my tools, really. (laughs) Right, and um, uh, electricians, they have screwdrivers, testing equipment, wire strippers. Doctors have stethoscopes and latex gloves and various other things. Cleaners have vacuums and they have dusters and squirters and sprayers. And Christians, we have tools for what we're about. And one of them is the Bible. Now, some of us have the opportunity to use the Bible in various spheres. You might be somebody who teaches the children on a Sunday or in one of the weekday groups. You might be a a Bible study leader in your house group. You might help out with Christianity Explored. Or you might, as all of us are, we have the Bible to demolish arguments. We have it to, uh, in our general life, when we're in in conversation with others, we use it to uh, correct erroneous thinking. Or just to ask people, what is the basis on which you happen to make a particular assertion? My observation is that uh, 
people are very uncertain as to what their basis is. It's largely personal peace and affluence is usually the, the fundamental basis. What is convenient for me rather than any really well thought out, secure foundation. Well, um, historically, this particular second Sunday in Advent was when the church concentrated its thoughts on the great gift of the Bible, of Scripture, that it recalled the fact that God has uh, revealed himself and that his plans and purposes have, uh, have been declared, without which, if he hadn't have done that, we would have remained pretty much in the dark. We would have been left just with the notion that uh, there's a creator, because there's a creation, and a sense stimulated by conscience that there was a God and that we were at variance with him. Well, he has revealed himself in history, and it has been recorded by the prophets in the Old Testament who not only recorded what happened at that particular point of revelation, but also foretold both the need and the coming of the Saviour. And then the apostles record, they, were, they had seen and they bore witness to the fact that that Saviour had pitched up in history in human form. And they record what he said and did for our benefit. And we all use the Bible, don't we, to assess other worldviews and we use it to persuade others that there is a better, a correct understanding of life. And this evening we're going to concentrate on how the Bible is used in particular. And there are four metaphors in this passage for biblical ministry, for the way in which we go about, to whatever degree, as kind of, if you like, pastor-teachers, but people who use the Bible to help people understand life and how to live it. And the four here are stewards, mothers, fathers, and heralds. A steward, you could say, is a guardian they, a steward is someone who's been entrusted with something for the benefit of other people, particularly down the generations. So now that I'm old enough to belong to the National Trust, or some of my children belong to it in their 20s, but I felt, you know, you do really need to be well and truly in your 60s to belong to such a body. But the National Trust... Yeah, it wouldn't be much point having a lifetime membership now, would it? Um, but... Uh, the, the National Trust is a steward of part of the, the heritage of the country, whether in terms of land or buildings, so that it, um, it looks after it for subsequent generations to enjoy. And that's a good picture of what we are. We have been entrusted with the Bible, and we hold it in trust and pass it on to subsequent generations. It is, if you like, sort of a biblical equivalent of the, of the relay race, where one runner passes on the baton to the next runner. 
And herald is a word which we're not so familiar with, but think of town criers of olden days, or in Roman times, somebody would stand up in the market square and read out on a scroll some edict from the Senate or from the Emperor. And the spokesperson is the official who is to uh, make known the message. You could even say advertise, although that has kind of manipulative connotations. But certainly you could use the word promote in terms of, uh, of what a herald does. Now, if we recall what the Apostle Paul's situation is, we get an idea of the context in which he's actually writing. He'd arrived in Thessalonica, and within two weeks, over three Sundays, well, Saturdays, um, he had led a number of Christian folk to faith. And that had stirred up a load of aggro amongst the Jewish community. And they orchestrated a riot, and Paul and Silas had to flee. The Romans couldn't care less too much about what your views were, as long as you put the emperor first and uh, you didn't cause any disturbance of the peace. So to, to stir up a riot is a pretty good way to get the Romans on your side to get rid of the person who supposedly has been the instigator of this disturbance. And although the follow-up of these new Christians was less than Paul would have hoped because he and Silas had to sort of scarper, their lives were at risk, and they weren't really able to return. Nonetheless, this little Christian community in Thessalonica flourished. But not everyone understood why Paul was no longer around and why he'd done a runner. And when people are not fully in the picture, all sorts of erroneous rumours can kind of um, be spread. So much so that it would seem that a smear campaign against him grew up. Accusations that he didn't really care about them. You know, he left them in the lurch. That he wasn't sincere. That he was in it all for his own ends. They were some of the accusations levelled against him in his absence. So how did he go about handling that? It's a useful question, that, because it may help us if we're ever in a position, whether at work or some other social club that you belong to or in your neighbourhood, where you know, erroneous ideas about you are kind of spread around. How do you handle it? Well, first of all, the way Paul went about it was that he was completely open with them. He faces the criticism head on. He doesn't duck the issue. He's prepared to face them and sort out the matters. And then he puts the facts before them. He's not a coward. He's not one of those who can't face up to things when the going gets tough. Not at all. Don't they remember what had actually happened. Before he'd come to them, he had actually been beaten up and kicked out of Philippi. He's moving on the road west. He's up in the northern part of Greece where it sort of curves around to get into Turkey. And he's working his way around so that he'll end up in Rome eventually. But he got beaten up and kicked out of Philippi. And just as he was kind of at risk of having to that situation in Thessalonica. 
But nonetheless, he wasn't put off. He carried on proclaiming the Christian message in the face of opposition in Thessalonica. They had short memories. If they recalled the facts, then that should have put an end to the malicious gossip that was circulating. But it was understandable. The ancient world was full of religious charlatans doing the rounds, peddling their latest kind of fashionable ideas. They were really after people's money and their allegiance. But they were charlatans. They were taking advantage of the gullible. So it's in marked contrast to them that Paul describes Christian ministry as exemplified by himself. So we turn beyond those first two verses to the rest of the text where Paul has these four metaphors of ministry, four illustrations of what the role of using the Bible in our ministries, teaching it, if you like, are. So we have the steward, the mother, the father, and the herald or spokesman. So the steward, first of all, and at greater length than the others. So Paul says, verse 4, that he has been entrusted with the good news. The good news is not his. He doesn't own it, but he's got to get others to take it. That's his role. He's like the shop manager, if you like. What he's got on display in the shop is not his. It belongs to another, the person who owns the shop. He is just managing it, and he's supposed to sell it. He can't put his own stuff in there, and he can't take stuff out of the shop without paying for it himself. They belong to somebody else. He is the trustworthy person who receives what he's given and sells it on to the customers. Now, as soon as you start thinking, of course, about salesmen and shops, you immediately start questioning their motives. Is what they've got good stuff? Are their motives good? Are they really just more concerned for a sale than rather selling me what I really indicate that I need and would be best for me? And are their methods dodgy? When they tell me there's a 20 quid discount today, is it genuine? Or if I come back next week, it's going to be a 40 quid discount. Well, we have lots of worries and doubts about salesmen. But with the Apostle Paul, there is no need to question him or to doubt him. He says, verse 3, his appeal is not based on error. It's not made with any impure motive. Neither does he try to trick anybody. Now let's think over that a moment. We, that's all of us, who are, if you like, stewards of God's message to mankind have a message that the Apostle Paul reminds us is true, it's not in error, it's shared out of pure motives, the listener's eternal health, and that we're all above board. We've got no tricks, no underhand methods. There's no adverse small print. One of the worst experiences you can have 
if you happen to be invited to be a speaker at some evangelistic supper party in someone's house, where someone has invited non-Christian friends round for a meal, but they don't tell them that they're going to have a talk from a Christian. But Christians do do it. They invite their friends along for supper with some friends. They might possibly add from church, but they don't say any more than that. But the moment of reckoning is a real embarrassment. So let's avoid trickery. Let's be straight with people. You get a much better response when people realise that you are sincere. Well, that's how not to behave as a steward of the scriptures. Verse 4 is more positive, how to behave. Paul says of himself that God has judged him worthy to be entrusted with the good news. Or in the, new, uh, uh, the NIV, he's been approved, or literally, he's been examined for genuineness. I don't know what you prefer when it comes to kind of... Uh, you know, educational, professional assessment, whether you are the kind of person who likes things which are predominantly uh, coursework, or whether you're somebody who thinks, oh dear, no, just, just give me the exams. Well, I'm very much definitely, in my life, the one who favours the exams at the end. Oh, it's far more, far less sweat, isn't it, really? I mean... You don't have to be good all the time. What a relief. All you've got to do is make sure that when the day comes, you're on top form. Pull it all out and uh, spew it all out on the paper. You know, that's how to do it. But if you have continuous assessment, you've got to be good all the time, not just for the exam, But every time you've got a bit of work to do. So there's no chance for a kind of, you know, light year in the lower sixth, for example. Or a bit of freewheeling when you've got quite a lot of sport or drama or musical things to do. You're not allowed a bad week. I think that's much harder. Unfortunately for me, God is into continuous assessment. It's not good... Um, just for us to rely upon the fact that we have been converted and that we've done some Bible study leaders course or other. It's very good and very useful, but if it stops there, it's no good. We have got to keep us, keep God's standard up all the time. We are to retain our credentials with him. We've got to be a genuine, obedient Christian each day. There's no days off for being a Christian, to be used by him, to be one of his approved workmen. And note God can test the parts that other examiners can never reach. He can test the motives of the heart. He knows not only whether you are doing the right thing, but whether you're doing it for the right reason, which is to please him and not men. Well, that's the steward. Here's the nursing mother, verses 5 to 8. So we turn to this metaphor of a mother caring for her children, verse 7, or the nursing mother. 
This is all to do with motivation. What should motivate us? And the answer is surely love. Verse 5, we're not trying to chat people up to get into their good books. We're not you know, dishing out flattery. You know, we're not ingratiating ourselves with, to somebody so that we can get out of them what we want. And we're not really after their money at all, like so many cults were then. And Christian groups can be today. And we're not after prestige in the eyes of other people either. We're not after materialistic gain. There are two things which religious charlatans were after. Two things Paul says they are certainly not like that. He is not like that at all. No, Paul was prepared for material sacrifice and prepared to be held in low esteem in the eyes of men. And he describes his motives in terms of love for his people, like a mother with, his, with her children. And he stresses gentleness, despite these people thinking ill of him, because he'd had to flee. And affection. So dear were they to Paul and Silas, verse 8, that they shared not only the gospel with them, but their very lives. They gave all, just like a mother does. Mothers make very many sacrifices for their children. The older you get, the more you realise that. Paul, though, was tough. He was a leader of men, and yet, when appropriate, he is prepared to use the picture of a nursing mother to describe his ministry. Real men have got kind hearts. And thirdly, the third metaphor, he moves on to the father, 9 to 12. In verse 11, he likens the ministry to being a father. And again, he states... He starts with the negative and he concludes with the positive. So verse 9, he reminds them that he was not a financial burden to them. It would seem that in, in, that, uh, that, um, in order to pay for his accommodation at Jason's house, that uh, what he would do would be at night, he would work as a tent mater tent maker, so that during the day, probably particularly in siesta time, that he would be able to teach the people. And remember, he was primarily, on his first visit, ministering to the Jews. It was to the synagogue attenders that he particularly, and their sort of Gentile fringe of God-fearers. And he says that he toiled and laboured. Both jobs were demanding tent maker, leather is thick stuff and you've got to kind of, you know, stitch it all up by hand. It's physically demanding. But his other job of sharing the Christian message, the message of scripture, was mentally and emotionally demanding, particularly in the face of the opposition he was getting. Now, why did he do this? Well, I think it's rather like why we don't actually in our church have uh, collection bags and all that stuff because we don't want unbelievers or God-seekers to think for a moment that we're after their money. 
So when he was uh, evangelising or church planting, there was no charge at all. Well, so much for the negative. Positively, he picks up the educational role of the father, encouraging, comforting, exhausting, urging them to live lives that please God. Not that Paul um, is sexual stereotyping here. He's not saying mums dish out all the love and affection and dads the encouragement and exhortations. In fact, he says he himself is doing both. He is acting like both a mother and a father. And the fourth and final metaphor is that of the herald, the public announcer, the spokesman. So verse 9, Paul says he preached or heralded to them the good news. And in verses 13 to 16, he expands a little on what that means. When we brought you God's message, he says, you heard it and accepted it, not as man's message, but as God's message, which indeed it is. So what he's claiming is that what he and the other apostles said and wrote was identical with what God said. His words were God's words. In the Old Testament, what the prophets said was the infallible word of God. Well, now in the New Testament, what Paul and other apostles say is also the infallible word from God. And it's not a dead letter. It is effective and life-changing. It arouses faith in people when people hear it and accept it. And once accepted, it is powerful when someone takes the message of God, the word of God, the truth of God, that that embedded in us, in our thinking, is able to change our lives. It's God's way of working in us. The sword of the Spirit is the word of truth. And so... As we accept the message of the gospel and its moral implications, the Bible's author, the Holy Spirit, accompanies that word, that message, that gospel, and changes our lives. And we know that, don't we? We have seen it happen to people who have accepted the Christian message and in being converted have been changed. Paul himself was a classic example a vehement opponent of Jesus Christ and yet converted to become a devoted follower of his. There's no question of people being no hopers. The word of God, the message of the gospel, can change people if they hear it and if they then accept it. And in doing so, allow God to change their lives. And the passage ends, verses 15 and 16, with a mention of uh, the Jews who tried to prevent the gospel being heard and how that was a particularly serious crime. Unbelievers will always want to stop the Christian message being heard. It is alarming when you read some of the manifestos of some of the parties and the way in which certain Christians in some parties have been excluded 
And the reason why is that people do not like to hear the truth. The truth encroaches upon our autonomy. And we want to do what we want to do. I'll do what I want. You ever heard that? Yeah. Grandchildren, adolescents, grand old people as well. We all ultimately say that. We want our personal autonomy. We want to decide what we want to do. And our driver is personal peace and affluence. People do not want to hear what we have to say. Because when we look, whether it be um, Christ himself, do we acknowledge his authority? Do we acknowledge that he was God on earth? As soon as we do that, a whole lot of things tumble. We have to put our lives into alignment with his. We have no choice in the matter, really. If he's God, we have to follow him. If we take the Ten Commandments, or just the last half a dozen of them, which talk about moral right and wrong in particular. You know, they are quite absolute. There's room for sort of negotiation as to what, for example, is theft and what is it. Um, this is between, between um, tax avoidance and tax evasion. Is that right? Yeah, I think something like that. There's a subtle difference between what is legally permissible and what is actually criminal. You can, you can have a debate as to precisely what is theft, but ultimately these are absolutes and we don't go against them, however tempted we are to do so. Well, let's summarise. What are the responsibilities of us using the Bible? I think we've seen that there are simply two. We are responsible before God to his word and to his people. To God's word, we are stewards and we are spokespersons. We have heard it We have accepted it, we pass it on without amending it. No addition to it, no subtraction from it. We can have confidence that it's true, that others will accept it, and that will change their lives now and forever. Our other responsibility is to God's people, like a nursing mother and like a father who cultivates us and prepares us for adult life. If we had time to go on to verse 17 and to the end of the chapter, which spell out Paul's concern, how he longed to visit them, how he'd sent Timothy to find out how they were doing, how he was overjoyed at hearing how well they'd been getting on, how he prayed for them, and what they meant to him. Maybe we, whatever the sphere and extent of our Christian ministry, that we might, like him, exercise our ministry in the way he did. Amen.